Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome back to Zone 7. Y'all, we're going to continue this series on the murders of Allison Foy and Angela Rothen. In the last two weeks, we've been able to speak with Lisa Valentino, Allison's sister, and Monica Kaysen, who was the searcher that assisted the families in their efforts to find their loved ones. And if y'all haven't heard those two episodes... Do yourself a favor and listen to these two folks. They are not only incredible human beings, but they are warriors. My great-grandfather was a district attorney in a small jurisdiction in South Georgia. I grew up on the front porch on those hot southern nights listening to stories about his quick mind and the way he applied the law so fairly. He had no choice because it was such a small town, he knew everybody. He knew every victim and he knew every accused. So he literally had to look at everything as fairly as possible. He never went to law school. He just studied under his father and became an attorney that way, which you could do years and years ago. Ironically, my great-grandfather and the grandfather of District Attorney Lewis Slayton in Fulton County were friends. And it was amazing to me whenever I got to watch DA Lewis Slayton in court when I did my internship at 19 years old, which is the same age my great-grandfather was when he was admitted to the bar, that our families were friends. And these connections are not lost on me, not historically, not personally, because they formed the way I see not just my hometown court system, but the CJ system as a whole. Justice is blind, y'all, but there's other senses that she can use, and hearing and touching to me are key. So when law enforcement puts a case file together to present to the district attorney, they lay their case out. All the evidence they have, the witnesses, how they see the case playing out almost in court, and what you can present to your judge and jury. And in this case, 
the detectives were able to present this case more than once to District Attorney Ben David. So Ben David is the DA on Allison and Angela's cases. He's the one that takes all the case files, reviews it, and determines whether or not ethically and legally he can move forward. So we are lucky today to be able to get to sit with him and go over what he has and, more importantly, what he might need and how we can help him, including maybe getting people to come forward. I believe there are witnesses out there. I believe he's got family members that have information, drinking buddies that have information, ex-cellmates that have information. All we need is one to break this case wide open. Now, I just want to recap a little bit. Allison Foy, 34, and Angela Nobles, 42, disappeared a year apart. Allison in 2006 and Angela in 2007. But both their remains were found in April of 2008, just feet apart. Allison was last seen at Junction Pub on July 30th, 2006, and Angela was last seen June 10th, 2007, at her own birthday party. But again, they wound up in a shallow grave together, and law enforcement, of course, could make no connection between the two. They did not know each other. Angela's skull was fractured, and some bones in her face were broken. The cause of death there was a cut to her neck. Allison was stabbed over 40 times. So I ain't going to waste any more time. I'm going to go ahead and introduce District Attorney Ben David. Mr. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Cheryl, thank you for having me. What a wonderful introduction. I didn't know that about your family. You might know I have an identical twin brother who's the elected district attorney in the neighboring three counties. So it, it runs in our family as well. Absolutely. I did not know that. Extraordinary. But again, you and your brother both know what we're talking about. Down there near Cape Fear, even the book that you wrote, it is imperative that you understand every facet of your cases because you're going to know the victims and the suspects as well. We say that today's victim is tomorrow's defendant because frequently the people who come in and out of this courthouse, one day they might be struggling with an addiction the next day, they might be breaking into a home or a car to support it or even prostituting their bodies. And actually, the case we're about to talk about, we had a young woman tell her truth in the courtroom this week, who I've prosecuted many times, but she's also a victim. And she was able to speak for women who couldn't speak for themselves. You know, you just mentioned something, because I think a lot of people don't really completely understand our world. But I've got a buddy, John Cross, and he always says, your victim today is your suspect tomorrow, and your suspect today is your victim tomorrow. That's right. It's the revolving door at the courthouse we talk about where these folks are caught in a cul-de-sac of despair. They seemingly are in this never-ending feedback loop where they are in and out of victimization and, and, and even jail and prison because they're also taking that out on other people or hurting the community to to continue hurting themselves in the case of drug addiction. And the good news is I get to know my whole community through this job. And I've been the elected district attorney for 18 years now. The, the terrible thing is the way I get to meet some of them. And obviously the worst way to meet a family is when their loved ones never coming home. Right. 
And you and I have talked many times over the years about this case. And, you know, I've tried to help in certain ways. I've, I've tried to offer the MVAD and different things. And right. I've gotten frustrated a couple times. I've gotten- I was frustrated just like you are. And I've always said to the families of the ladies you're talking about now that we all want the same thing. We do. And, and we also understand your job. You get one shot. We know that. You get one shot. You know, but sometimes when you didn't go to law school and you sit there and you think, gosh, this case, as a circumstantial case, it's pretty solid. And you and I talked about the nobody case you prosecuted and were successful. And I'm like, Mr. David, you were successful in prosecuting a nobody case. And here you have two. How in the world are we not at grand jury? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do on this particular episode. I know you're a college professor and and your students love you and you've written a great book, but just talk to me like I'm one of your students because I didn't go to law school. And it's not as easy as just I'm going to go in front of the grand jury and get this guy indicted because he's not just a suspect. He's the only suspect. But just walk me through what when you first learned about Allison and Angela and how you started piecing it together and what you thought immediately. You just start like we're in your classroom. Sure. Okay. Well, right when these bodies were found, we developed information that Timothy Iannone is a cab driver because both of them were waiting on a cab driver, was a lead suspect. We knew that he picked up vulnerable young women, many of whom were prostituting their bodies. And there was evidence that Miss Rothen was in that community. And so we said, let's take a hard look at him. And there was a case that had been resolved pretty recently in the court system with a young woman who I'm going to call Sonia. Sonia actually was friends with Angie. She was a young woman who, when she was growing up with her mother and three uncles, became abused by them almost immediately as a child, incest victim. They actually threw dead snakes on her in bed and said, if you ever tell anyone, these snakes will be alive. She ended up getting a terrible drug addiction to medicate that pain. She ended up walking the streets for 10 years, was in all sorts of terrible circumstances over that next decade where she was a streetwalker. The only time she ever reported victimization to the police, the only time she ever ran to them instead of from them, was the night she met Timothy Iannone for the first time. And I know you and I, Again, we see the same people, even though we're in different states. But I can tell you straight up, I have never dealt with somebody that was a sex worker that was not sexually abused as a child. That's right. No, and that, that's what we mean by today's victim is tomorrow's defendant. Very frequently, the, the young women who are in hotel rooms and high on heroin and fentanyl, they have very traumatic childhoods. We call it ACEs in North Carolina, adverse childhood experiences and adverse community environments. There's a whole science around that that's probably better for another podcast. But suffice it to say, Sonia was someone who absolutely was victimized throughout her life. And she never pretended to be a victim when she wasn't, but when she actually was one, she frequently did not report it because she looked at the police as the enemy instead of friends. But on August 25th, 2007, Timothy Iannone picked her up in his cab and drove her to right behind the pirate's table, which is off of Raleigh Road, and held her at knife point and ended up sexually assaulting her, threatening her with that knife to kill her and actually tied her up with duct tape. It was only when she was able to wriggle free from that and talk him into 
getting out of there that she ultimately was able to run, literally kicking and screaming to the police. He was arrested later that night and charged. The, the police were initially skeptical. They, she went and got a rape kit. She claimed to be a kidnap victim. But when we went to try and find her in preparation for the trial, she acknowledged to us in this trial that she went to ground. She did not want to participate. She was ducking subpoenas. D.T. Moore couldn't find her. One of my prosecutors at the time, Drew Lewis, sent her a letter to an address that she acknowledged wasn't even going to reach her. That's what was listed in the police reports. And so she ultimately had her case pled out to a felony of what's called crimes against nature. And this was all before we found Angie and, and Allison. Right. So when that case was resolved, it nonetheless had Timothy Iannone listed as a suspect. And so that was resolved in um, November of 2007. Well, of course, this grim discovery was made in April of 2007 in the very spot that she claimed to be a victim. And based on the fact that he was tied into, at least circumstantially to this, officers turned their full attention towards Mr. Iannone. And so we couldn't prosecute that case anymore because it had been resolved and it would be double jeopardy to recharge him, even though we wished we could. So what this office has done through the years, and I, I hope you see from his criminal record that he has 25 felony convictions including about 20 of them post-2007, we came up with every which way to prosecute him for various financial crimes he had done, mostly embezzlement and what's called obtaining property by false pretenses, and were able to make him a habitual felon so that we could put him in prison for several years, much the way that Al Capone was put in prison for tax evasion, even though we know he killed at least 18 people. Absolutely. I was just going to say y'all took the Al Capone route, which is, again, you're doing everything you can, but you've got two families here that probably see it differently, right? Of course they do. And, and listen, prosecutors speak for the dead in murder trials. We give victims a voice at the courthouse. I'm the conscience for this community anytime a crime occurs. The 50 people who work in my office, the 1,200 who work in law enforcement, they do what they do for a living for people just like Timothy Iannone and just for victims like Angie and Allison. So no one needs to give us a sermon about caring or wanting what's right out of this case. Ethics rules prevent me from talking about the facts of a pending case. That is 3.6 and 3.8 of the ethics rules. Different states do it differently, but we're not allowed to literally say what we have and don't have in this case. I'll tell you that we have submitted a lot of evidence through the years to labs. We have interviewed dozens and dozens of people. We have convened critical case reviews to analyze what we have and even gone outside this office to get outside opinions. We have done everything we could to say, do we have enough? And it is the, the learned opinion of every dispassionate senior prosecutor and most of the police officers we've talked to that we simply didn't have enough to go forward on the murder trials to get those ladies justice. But we've always wanted to put Timothy Iannone away for anything. Absolutely. So once you knew, what did you instinctively go into action? What was your plan? Like I said, go to the Al Capone method first and see if we couldn't put him in custody for anything, which we were ultimately successful in doing. We also wanted to see if we could 
tie together any other cases. Mr. Iannone has, and, and just so you know where we are, there's 20 different police agencies in my district with, like I said, over 1,200 officers, and some of them change up through time. Now, of course, everything is on computers, and you can touch a button and, and print out a lot about someone's record or what law enforcement touches they have. But that hasn't always been the case. Prior to 1999, everything was still off of computers. That is, it was offline. And in order to find different suspect information, you have to methodically go through file after file. And that, that's ultimately, by the way, how we caught a break against Mr. Iannone. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It is hard to keep a secret in a small town. Everybody knows the car you drive. They know where you live. They know where you work. They know your children. They know where you go to church. They probably know what liquor store you like. Timothy Iannone was known to law enforcement. They knew him. Prostitutes knew him. Drug dealers knew him. So you've got two polar opposite groups, police and criminals, that know this man. He didn't keep his secret from any of them. But here's sometimes how it works. A young girl that's a drug addict that chooses to make her living as a sex worker oftentimes goes where the work is. So if Atlanta is having the Super Bowl, she may go to Atlanta for a week and leave Wilmington. She also may get arrested and go to jail for a period of time. Nobody considers her missing. Nobody thinks of her as she's vanished. They just think she's either somewhere else working or maybe she got pinched. That's it. 
So when you have someone go missing who is known on the street, you tend to look at your usual suspects. And in this case, it absolutely should have been Timothy Iannone. But everybody knew it. And everybody knew sometimes he would hurt people. And everybody knew that sometimes those people didn't show back up. Tell me a little bit about when you have Sonia and then you have another rape kit come back with an additional victim, but their cases are similar. So you've got a similar transaction. Tell me what you did recently. In 1996, specifically June 8th, a young woman named Michelle was walking down the street. She is not a sex industry worker. She had recently broken up with her husband and she was trying to exchange their two kids with her husband and they missed each other at a gas station. And so she was walking back because she did not have a car. A man drove by a couple of times and asked her if she'd like to get in. She said no. He then flashed a badge at her the third time and said, you could be arrested for blocking traffic. You have two choices. You can either get in my car and I can take you to somewhere safe where you can call somebody to pick you up, or I can take you to jail. Michelle, who 24, never been in trouble, was raised to respect police officers, said, I'll, I'll get in. It was Timothy Iannone. And he took her to a dirt road with woods where you can scream and no one can hear you. And there he brutally sexually assaulted her at knife point and also had a gun on the floorboard of his car uh, just to reinforce the point that she wasn't going anywhere. He left her on a heap on the ground and drove off. This young woman was found by a jogger who just happened to be coming through that remote area. He hailed down a police officer at a more major intersection. And then the rape investigation started. Michelle went to New Hanover Regional Medical Center and thank goodness got a rape kit. That's a very invasive procedure that you probably know about, but it involves, it involves getting any forensic evidence from the victim. And that rape kit was collected within an hour and a half of that incident. It then sat on a shelf because back in 1996, it was the policy of the state crime lab that you couldn't send in a rape kit unless you had an identified suspect. Well, two and a half months go by, and this young woman who's already been to the police station to look through mug books and can't find anybody who fit the suspect's description that she thinks did it. And that's because Timothy Iannone, by the way, was not in that mug book, even though he already had a felony conviction and two prior misdemeanors. That was through the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office. And those two agencies did not yet have information that linked up with each other for mug book purposes. So two and a half months later, she's down at a bar in Carolina Beach and she sees Timothy Iannone in the bar. She's sure it's him. She runs out of there to the boardwalk, hails down a police officer from Carolina Beach and says, the man who raped me two and a half months ago is in that bar. You know, again, officers in different agencies knew each other, but didn't have each other's investigative files. He called up to WPD, an online, an on-call detective came down, interviewed Mr. Iannone, who denied any involvement or ever being on Titanium Road where this event occurred, said he didn't know her. He said, the, the detective who was on call, I'm not going to arrest you tonight. You need to come on into WPD so we can interview you further. They did that. 
the next Monday after this weekend. And Mr. Iannone essentially talked his way out of there with the lead detective saying he wanted to follow up again with the victim to show her a lineup now that he had a picture of Mr. Iannone. He couldn't find that victim anywhere. And we think that's because Hurricane Fran happened five days after this initial sighting. And she left not only Carolina Beach, but the state of North Carolina for the next several years. Mm. So WPD closed that case as unsolved back in 1996. And that rape kit sat on a shelf for the next nearly quarter of a century. Oh, my Lord. And so here's what happened, just so you know. In 2007, when Timothy Iannone becomes a suspect for Sonia's case, Mm -hmm. the lead detective doesn't even know that case exists because even though he's now in a police report that says we questioned him about this brutal kidnapping and knife rape back in 1996, they didn't even have access to their own records that weren't online in the WPD. And so that detective was unaware of that 1996 case. Fast forward the clock to 2019, when North Carolina passes what's called the Survivors Act, $6 million appropriated in order to test untested rape kits. Thank goodness for that. Many of us advocated for that law to to come into effect. So the state crime lab turned to all the police agencies and sheriffs in North Carolina and said, We want to test these untested rape kits. We know there's thousands of them. Try to prioritize them. Look at the worst of the worst that might be in your stack. Not consent cases where DNA might not resolve the issue. Look at stranger abductions. Look at intruders with weapons, those kinds, or really terrible people that are suspects. So it was only at that point in November of 2019 that the detectives spread out 532 rape kits at the WPD and said, where do we start? Mm. And that's where a young female detective who looked through old police reports that, again, weren't on computers, but were from 1996 handwritten notes from just an interview in a bar, said, oh, my goodness, Timothy Iannone is on here. And so that jumped to the line. As, as one of the very first things that was done. And so that's when we not only were able to send in the rape kit from 1996, but also DNA that we took from Mr. Iannone in 2007 in order to try and solve the case involving Sonia. Now, that is incredible police work. That's how you connect the dots. Absolutely. That is old school, boots on the ground, hands on every piece of evidence type of police work that is just extraordinary. That's when this case broke open. And just a little wrinkle in this, the crime lab was so busy with these backlogged kits that they hired a private lab in another state to process many of them. And that rape kit was so old and degraded that they said, there's something on the vaginal swab, in other words, from inside the victim that says, we've got DNA here but it's so old and degraded that we can't say much about it. This lab doesn't have the tools and toys to do anything further. So we have to say that this is inconclusive, but we recommend that a state lab that has better resources take a different look at it. And so that's when they sent it back to WPD and a new detective got involved and sent it to the state crime lab and said, what else can you do? And there's something called YSTR testing. 
And YSTR is on the male chromosome. It's, it's literally XY. And it's not as good as nuclear DNA, but comparing it to a known suspect, and again, we had Timothy Iannone's DNA, they batched up the various loci. There's 22 points of comparison you can make between Timothy Iannone's degraded 2007 sample that was even missing nine loci itself against the rape kit sample. And when we did that, they said, there's a one in 5,000 chance that anybody else would have this DNA. And so if you're talking about a county of only 140,000 people, 70,000 of whom are males, and even fewer that match the description of being a white male, 5'10 to 6 feet and 180 pounds, you're talking about only about 15 people that are walking around with that type of DNA. And that's something a jury could understand. Not only could they understand it, but here's the, here's the next big break we caught. Timothy Iannone has two brothers, Tom and Steve. And the suspect called himself Tom to the victim. We know that Iannone, when he would pick up prostitutes, would frequently use an alias. Mm -hmm. And we knew on this night that he had used his brother's identity as an alias, even saying that he has a brother with two kids talking about himself, but pretending to be this guy, Tom. So how do we eliminate Tom as a suspect? Because as you know, with much of this DNA that's not nuclear, sometimes it's shared by maternal and paternal relatives. Well, the great news is that Tom Iannone and Steve Iannone and Tim Iannone, they all have the same mother, but they all three have different fathers. There you go. And the YSTR is unique to the paternal line, which means Tom was eliminated as a suspect. He could not be one of those 15 people in New Hanover County who could have done this. Right on. And I want people to understand, too, didn't Timothy own his cab, use his personal cell phone? Yes, Absolutely. In fact, this was adduced at evidence as we were trying to find other victims to say me too, because that's obviously much stronger when many women who are separated by years and who have never met are all telling the same story. We can link those cases up through a common plan or scheme, what they call in Latin, the modus operandi. And so we held a hearing back in October before this trial where I said, judge, and he was a great judge named Tom Wilson visiting from New Bern. I said, Judge, let me tell you, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. We know that Sonia was, was raped at knife point over the grave of one of her friends and another woman. So Lee Odom is going to get on the stand to talk about those cases. That detective walked the streets for the next several weeks after finding those bodies and found upwards of seven other women who were all saying, me too. They're saying, I might be on the streets, but I never signed up for this. And it was always the same. He would say, I'll take you somewhere where you can work off a favor for me to get a ride to your next customer. And when he took them always to these remote wooded areas, sometimes the very places where Allison and Angie were found, he would hold them at knife point and essentially torture them and sexually assault them. None of those women reported it except for Sonia. But Lee was able to find them through just good old-fashioned police work and never giving up. We tried to get other of those cases admitted into this trial. Only Sonia's was allowed to be admitted. One of the women has since died of a heroin overdose. Another one, her case was considered too dissimilar by the judge because you have to match up a lot of points of similarity, just like you do 
with this DNA we're talking about sure. for, it, for it to be relevant and admissible. But nonetheless, we knew exactly who we had in front of us back in 2008. And that's what I tried to present pre-trial. And the judge heard just enough to say, not only is Michelle going to be able to tell her truth after a quarter of a century, but Sonia, who was never able to really speak about her victimization in a courtroom, she's now going to be able to play a game of It's Your Life, Tim Iannone also, and tell the jury what happened to her. And both those women were courageous and brave and came in and did it. And you know something? I have a buddy, Ashley Wilcox, who is on Court TV as one of their anchors. And she says, think about the most romantic and greatest sexual escapade you ever had. Would you want to walk into a room of 30 strangers and tell them about it? I mean, here's the thing. I, people try and raise consent defenses in rape cases. Mm -hmm. I, I remind juries of a couple of things. These rape kits we're talking about right now, for a woman to go in and get a rape kit, she is not only spread apart in the presence of strangers after they put like a black light all over called a woods light to see if anything's glowing on her body. They spread her apart. They put Q-tips inside of every orifice you can think of. And then they have to pull not only 50 head hairs for DNA comparisons against the suspect, but 50 individual pubic hairs. Now, who would submit themselves to that? let alone the humiliation of then having to go in and retell that story to total strangers time and time again in the course of an investigation, and then come with your entire community watching in front of not only 12 jurors, but maybe dozens of other people, and there were in this courtroom mm -hmm. watching. And that's why I'm so proud of our local media for not giving the names of rape victims. Who would want to report it if they knew they were going to be on the cover of the paper for that? If you don't want to tell complete strangers the greatest sexual experience of your life, you certainly, absolutely. No, that's right. And, well, and, and that's why that's why it's the most underreported case in the criminal justice system. In fact, I've heard and I, I don't know, Cheryl, if you've got this number at the ready, but I've heard only one out of 18 people who perpetrate a sex offense ever taste the inside of a jail mm. uh, for all the dynamics we're talking about right now. And I'll say something else that sometimes I get backlash for, but it's the truth. Nobody rapes one time. Yeah. Very frequently what you see in these cases, these things are a learned behavior. And when these guys figure out they can get away with it and they, and they figure out that particularly if you have vulnerable victims, they're unlikely to come forward because of maybe fear of police. And even if they do, those cases are sometimes not handled in the same way in different parts of our country. We have an absolute duty to make sure that the road ends anytime someone is, is saying that they've been sexually assaulted because these cases always happen again. Amen. 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 And I think you can't say that enough and people can't hear it enough because you're going to be judged. And I hear all the time, what was she wearing? Why was she there alone? Why was she drinking? All these kind of things. Nobody ever says, why was he there? Why did he go with her? Why was he drinking? That's never said. So again, you know that you're the one that's going to be literally, you know, judged by these folks. Well, and also there's another dynamic, and that is that they're frequently victims are so traumatized right after something like this happens that it's like throwing a puzzle up into the air and it coming down and there's only pieces. And now you're getting them to try and recount everything. 
And when their details are all over the map, people think, well, they must be making this up. I mean, obviously, if they just endured this, that it's such an intimate thing, they'd be able to recount every detail. That's not how trauma is stored in the brain. And actually, Michelle did a great job explaining to folks, I don't remember anything until actually being at the Rape Crisis Center. If you tell me I talked to a jogger or I talked to two different police officers there in the woods, I just don't remember it. I'm not disputing it. I'm not disputing some of these things I said. But for for them to be cross-examined about every little detail that they might have missed, that's like asking Mrs. Lincoln how the rest of the play was. She's not going to be able to tell you. She just knows her husband was murdered. And it's just like when people say, well, she was wearing a miniskirt. Hold up a second. 27 years old wearing a miniskirt. Explain to me the 87-year-old that was raped or the three-year-old was raped. My oldest rape victim in the time I've been district attorney was 95 years old. And I remember having a press conference immediately after a case involving the rape of a senior citizen who was 81 years old. And she insisted on holding a press conference afterwards because she was a career newspaper reporter. And she knew the dynamic that a lot of people didn't come forward. And that because they don't frequently have spokeswomen for this, she was going to be that spokeswoman. And she said, you know what? If it could happen to me, it could happen to you. This is a crime of violence. It's not a crime of sex. And I encourage women to come forward. And do you know what happened? And this was, by the way, in 2005, way before the Me Too movement. The following year, out of 42 judicial districts, out of 100 counties in North Carolina, we led the state in judicial districts and in county in the number of reported rape cases. And that's a good thing because the most underreported crime finally had a woman who said, you know what, you need to do this. And that's why I'm so proud of Michelle after this case, insisting on saying, you know what, I know that they haven't reported my identity up until now. She's been living in a hotel for two and a half weeks during this trial. Right after the verdict, when she walked into that hotel, she said everyone started cheering. She said, you know what? The staff put it together. They knew who I was. They knew how bad this guy was. And I realized I don't need to run from this. I didn't do anything wrong. He's to blame, not me. I want to tell it. And so after the sentencing hearing, which was the next morning, she wanted to have a press conference and say, it's important for the trail to end when people are victimized. And the only way to do that is to have these cases handled when they occur, not a decade or in this case, 26 years later. What a remarkable hotel staff. What remarkable people. And, and Michelle deserves that. She deserves all the support and care and love she can get. And she didn't do anything wrong. And you mentioned it then, but I, I just want to reiterate for people, when you look at these crimes of rape and you think, okay, instead of a knife, he used a penis. And sometimes people like Timothy Ione use both. But it is a weapon. It has nothing to do with sex at all. That's right. I mean, how can you say a child is a sex object or a 95-year-old person is? I mean, it's it's a it's about power and control. And what and one thing that I said to that jury in closing the argument out is I said, Timothy Iannone is used to being in control. He's like a writer of his own horror story that's actually a true story, one that has spanned three decades. And this last page of the book that is his life, you get to write. It's called the verdict sheet. And you have the power of the pen. He's not in the woods now. He's in our house. And you get to decide how the story ends. And the only way this story ends is guilty as charged of first-degree rape, first-degree kidnapping, 
put him in prison forever through your verdict. And they did. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. If Timothy Iannone is in prison, why is it important to move forward on the murder of Allison Foy and Angela Rothen? He will likely spend the rest of his life there, but he's in prison for rape. He is not in prison for murdering Allison and Angela. In Atlanta, during 1979 to 1981, We had the missing and murdered children cases in Atlanta, and I had the opportunity to meet with and advocate for several of those families over the years. And one thing that they kept saying to me over and over and over is they never got their justice. Wayne Williams was convicted of two murders, two adults. He was never convicted of killing one of the children. Not one family of one child got their day in court. Not one child's family heard the evidence against Mr. Williams in an open court. Not one family had the opportunity to face the accused, give a victim impact statement, tell the court and the jury what these crimes had done to their family and to them personally. Not one child's family was able to see a jury from their community convict the killer of their child. The families of the missing and murdered children today feel cheated. Some of them even believe he didn't commit the crimes. And again, they've never seen or heard all of the evidence against him in their child's specific case. 
Timothy Iannone is in prison. It matters to Lisa. And it matters to Karina and the rest of their families. It matters to be able to face that man in open court, hear the evidence against him, and give their own victim impact statements. They deserve to see and hear the evidence as well. They deserve to let a jury decide. Cops sometimes make fun of detectives when cases don't make, and detectives make fun of prosecutors when cases don't make, and prosecutors might make fun of judges when cases don't make. But we all are on the same team. And even though in the past I I just could not wrap my mind around why you could not go forward, but I respect so much what you did on Michelle's case. Tell everybody the verdict. The jury was out an hour and 40 minutes, and they came back guilty as charged, not only of both of those counts, and that's all he was charged with in this case, but there were three different theories of first-degree kidnapping under North Carolina law. One is that you kidnap someone for the purposes of committing a sex offense. Well, if the underlying felony that you convict on is is a rape case, you have to do what's called arrest judgment on that first-degree kidnapping. It's essentially a double jeopardy principle that you can't punish him for first-degree kidnapping if the underlying basis to make it first-degree kidnapping is also a sex offense. So what we also did is indicted him on two other legal theories. One was that he left her in an unsafe place, which also converts a second-degree kidnapping to first-degree. And we said he left her out in the woods. And also that she has suffered permanent injury. Um, and we're not talking about any bruises, any cuts. There was no nothing in her medical exam that showed any injuries at all. But the mental injury, the trauma that she experienced, she said, I haven't been able to trust men after this. I haven't been able to trust police officers after this because he pretended to be an undercover cop. And even though I've done my best to raise my two boys and get on with my life, he took a piece of me in those woods that I can't give to anyone else anymore. And in the fullness of time, we know that that is a true statement based on what her last quarter of a century has looked like. The jury found him guilty not only of first-degree rape, but first-degree kidnapping under all three of those legal theories, which means the judge could have both convictions before him when sentencing. And he did what's called boxcar or consecutive sentences, and he maxed him out under the law. And because Timothy Iannone had a terrible criminal record, even though he had a pretty minor record back in 1996, I was able to successfully argue that we should consider his record in today's terms, not back when he did the crime. So he had a much greater sentencing enhancement because of those more than 20 prior felony convictions that my office loaded him up with through the years to make him Al Capone. So in tandem with both of those things, both with this great verdict that the jury so deliberately made sure it give us all the tools in the belt to, to sentence him most, and with the enhanced punishment because of his greater habitual felon record, we were able to boxcar him, meaning run those sentences consecutive to each other and max him out. So the mandatory minimum he has to serve is 49 years in prison to 59 and a half. And at age 61, that means he's not eligible for release till he's 110 years old. I love everything about that. And I love the fact that he will never see the light of day outside of prison ever in his pathetic life. So what I'm also prayerful of is because of that, there's no chance he's getting out. So maybe somebody will feel more confident to come forward that maybe has some information about Allison and Angela. 
his wife, for example, somebody he drinks with, a buddy, somebody he was locked up with. He's bragged to somebody. He's told somebody. There was another victim. He told about it. Why don't you tell people where he raped one person at the graveyard? That's right. Well, Sonia was raped at the graveyard. I mean, that was that was on 312 Raleigh Street, which was within walking distance of where Angie and Allison were found. So, yes. And, and here's the thing. That's why we wanted to hold this press conference after the, the verdict. Not only did we want Michelle to speak her truth, but I met with the chief of police ahead of that time and said, I want a dedicated phone line set up for the community to call in with any tip moving forward on Allison and Angie's cases. Because in my experience, and I've had now 23 as a prosecutor trying these murder cases and rape cases, is when people understand that a terrible individual is never getting out, it changes the game in terms of people fearing reprisal, retaliation, and retribution. Absolutely. They sometimes come forward with details that only the killer could know in in the case of a murder. And so we have cracked cold cases Many times where, you know, it is the wife, it is the daughter, it is the drinking buddy, it is the cellmate Mm -hmm. who says, you know what, this guy can't hurt anybody anymore. I want to be able to to finish up some unfinished business. This has been weighing on me. And so that, that is still what we are hopeful about, that someone who knows something about those cases will come forward. We absolutely remain committed to taking those cases forward if we're able to prove it in a courtroom. And, and just, to, just, just to tie that off a little bit, it's not whether we can get an indictment. It's not whether we can, by probable cause standard, say that he's responsible for those cases. We've already said that in a courtroom through these what are called 404B hearings, these other crimes evidence thing to give the, the judge a full view of how he came onto our radar screen, why we drew his DNA and tested it against the other one. We had to give the judge out of the presence of the jury in this rape case the reason for why we were doing all of that. The issue is not whether he likely did it. It's whether we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And again, I I am not able, because of the ethics rules, to show you the evidence we have or don't have in that case. You're absolutely right that circumstantial evidence can be every bit as powerful as direct evidence. I told the jury, for instance, if I'm trying to prove that it's raining outside, I can call a witness who is at a window because we might be in a windowless room right now as a jury who can testify under oath that it's raining, or I can bring in someone dripping wet who's holding an umbrella and a rain jacket. Mm -hmm. And that's physical evidence. That's circumstantial evidence. We can try some cases where we don't even have direct or circumstantial, but we have a pattern of conduct. And that's, in fact, what I did with the James Bradley case that you mentioned earlier, the no body homicide, which could be its own podcast. We've done cases like that before. Every case is unique. We look at the evidence before us and the laws that apply to determine whether we can get justice in a courtroom, and we never, ever give up. He said to Sonia in those woods, he said, my wife's been cheating on me and I want to kill her, but I can't, so I'm going to kill you instead. Sweet Jesus. I mean, justice does not sleep. Just ask Timothy Iannone, a case from 26 years ago is the reason he's in jail tonight and will be in prison for the rest of his life. And I have to say, watching that press conference, the one sentence that just leaped out at me is when you said, and I quote, we are not finished with Mr. Iannone. That's right. I can't thank you enough for being with us today. 
and I appreciate you taking my calls through the years. I appreciate you taking my uh, not always so understanding, you know, attitude, you know, toward what you were or weren't doing. Hey, Michelle, I, I want you to know, I appreciated those calls. And I, I talked to Lisa Valentino right after the verdict. And I said, you know, if this happened to someone I love, like a sister, I would be in that DA's office screaming every day too. I respect you, Lisa. This is not about being on a different team. We want the exact same thing. You just have to understand that there are folks trying to do everything we can within the bounds of the law to hold the man we believe responsible for your sister's death with that. We've tried every which way to do that through the years, and we have. We are continuing to do that, and we are not finished with Mr. Iannone. If you have any information on who murdered Allison Foy and Angela Nobles Rothen, there's a tip line, 910-343-3600. Contact the Wilmington Police Department and let them know what you know. It doesn't matter if it's a little thing and you don't think it's significant. Let them decide whether or not it's significant. You may have the information that could crack this case wide open. If you don't want to contact law enforcement, contact the Q Center. Contact Zone 7. Reach out to someone, whether it's Crime Stoppers or anybody you trust, you can make all calls anonymously, but let somebody know what you know. Y'all, I'm going to end Zone 7 like I do always with a quote from someone from my Zone 7. You alone can make the difference in solving a case or getting justice for the victim. And that comes from Alice from the Prosecutor's Podcast. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. Next week, we wrap up this series on Allison Foy and Angela Nobles with Angela's sister, Karina. We've heard from family members. We've heard from one of the searchers, and we've heard from the district attorney. This case is going to take all of us. So join us next week on Zone 7. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
What if we told you about a major breakthrough on awesome savings on all-inclusive beach vacays? OMG, this could break the case. Case? I'm talking about CheapCaribbean.com. It's full of hot savings. At CheapCaribbean.com, score an extra $175 off site-wide on vacations of four nights or more now through June 3rd. Swim up bar in Punta Cana or dip your toes in the sand on the shores of Cancun. We gotta take this show on the road. Start at CheapCaribbean.com. 